Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. We will start, the text that we will focus on will be Matthew five seventeen through 20. But just for some context, we'll pick up in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we want your Holy Spirit to enlighten us through your word. We know that without his working in our minds, we will remain darkened. Our hearts unpenetrated by the life-giving power of your word. Oh, grant that miracle, we pray, Heavenly Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Feed us with that heavenly manna from above. We pray in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. would have you to see three things this evening. First is the law's fulfillment in Christ. The second is the law's permanence in Christ. And the third is the law's inadequacy apart from Christ. Uh, for context, remember, Jesus has come. He has been preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. So he's been preaching this. And then he preaches repent and believe the gospel. And now he has started his Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about the people who are in the kingdom, their character, the blessings that are bestowed upon them. He started with the Beatitudes and uh, then he moved into saying, you are the salt and the light. This is what this type of character, this type of person does when he's mixed in the world. And now he's talking about the law. Now. Uh, it is obvious that he is emphatic about what he's saying. Look at how he starts in verse 17. Do not think when you were a parent and you were telling your children not even to touch something, don't even think about it. That's what you would tell them. Don't even let it get in your mind. And here Jesus is saying, don't think that I have done. Don't even think that I would abolish the law or done X, Y, and Z. Second of all, we have to figure out what he is talking about. What is he speaking of when he references the law or the prophets? Well, there's several different ways that the Bible, the scriptures, uses the term law. 
Uh, it could refer to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. It could refer to the whole Old Testament. There are times when Christ will quote, say, the law says, and then he'll quote from the Psalms, for example, and that's not part of the five books of the old, te- uh, of the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, but is part of the broad general Old Testament. Or it can be used to refer to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the, the law that you must keep. That's probably what comes to most of our minds when we hear the word law used. But in this case, you can tell he's speaking of the broader scriptures, the law or the prophets, the five books of Moses and all of the prophets that came after calling Israel to repent and turn back to God. So Christ is saying, it, you can imagine why this is important for him to be clarifying. He's saying the kingdom has come. I am bringing something new. He's bringing the new covenant. And so in people's minds, it would be obvious to think, well, what does this mean for the old? What does this mean for all the stuff that has come before? Is it going to be wiped away, demolished, destroyed, and then now something new put in its place? And Christ is making clear it is not this dichotomy of all of this old stuff is gone and I'm doing something completely different. He's continuing in this. He is saying these laws will continue as until heaven and earth pass away. In fact, In our next sermons that we will go, you'll see he's expounding the law. He's taking it to a higher degree that the Pharisees even believed in. They want it to be external. As long as you don't murder somebody, you're good. And Christ is saying it's at the deeper level. It's at the heart level. You cannot even be angry with a person. So he is not getting rid of the law. He's heightening the demands of the law. He says here, I have not come to abolish it. Now, that seems pretty clear. I have not come to abolish it. And yet, would you believe that there is such a massive disagreement amongst ourselves, Reformed folk, Presbyterians, fall in that camp, and dispensationalists, most of our Baptists and non-denominational. Non-denominational typically means Baptists. Just don't want to be called Baptists. But we have a division among ourselves with regard to this text. Do you, if you, if you were to think of the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, there are, if you were to ask Charles Ryrie, those of you who don't know, he's a classic old-time dispensationalist. He was one of those writers that came up with this sort of theology. And here's a quote from him. He says, um, the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, have been done away with. Even prominent teachers that we love to listen to, John MacArthur uh, says that the Ten Commandments are an Old Testament standard. That's indeed why many of these Baptists are not Sabbatarians like Presbyterians. We follow the Sabbath. We do not work on Sunday. Uh, John MacArthur would say uh, the other nine commandments are repeated in the New Testament. We follow those commands, but we're not following the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. That is, Old Testament has nothing to do with the believer. Now, we'd still even quibble with that statement that the other nine are repeated but not the Sabbath. Of course, there's uh, Hebrews 4, 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So we would say there it's been repeated. So even if you're only going to follow what's been repeated in the New Testament, you still can't get out of that one. It would be strange for only nine of the big ten to be repeated, and of course they aren't. Uh, John Piper is in the same boat. He said the Ten Commandments don't apply to Christians. They're not under the Ten Commandments. So how is this the case when Christ says, I have not come to abolish? How are we to make sense of this? 
Indeed, it can even get more muddled because in your brain you might be thinking, well, there are some Old Testament things that we don't follow. Shellfish might come to your mind and all the things that are brought up in this sense. So we have some work to do this evening to figure out what is Christ meaning when he says, I have not come to abolish. But that's going to be in our second point right now. We're going to focus on because he he picks this back up in verses 18 and 19 when he starts talking about the permanence of the law. So we'll cover the permanence of the law in when we cover those verses. Let's move now to it's it's enough to say he's not abolishing it. <laughs> Let us move to where he says, but instead of abolishing it, I have come to fulfill the law. This is more obvious in most of our minds as to what this could mean. It, it could mean at least two things. Uh, he has come. Well, first of all, before I tell you these two things, we have to note he has come. What does that mean? This is the God, the God man who became incarnate. He come. I have come. He came to earth. He has come to this planet on a mission. I came to do something, to fulfill the law. And so we must always keep in mind that Christ is not just a mere mortal. He is not like other religious leaders who have started their own religions along their own lines. He came from heaven. He is the God, man, our Savior. Now, what is the first way it could refer to that he fulfills? Well, it could be that he fulfills in that he obeyed. Every single thing in the law. He is the one who has accomplished it. And of course, if he didn't, what state would we be in? If he had not lived the perfect life and died on the cross to merit our salvation, there would be no atonement. All would be lost. And so this is a very important way for this to mean the atoning sacrifice that he died on the cross. He fulfilled the laws by obeying them. That's one way it could be. The second way, how does he fulfill the prophets? Well, they prophesied there will be one that comes. He will be born here. He will do this. He will keep riding on a donkey. He will do all these things. So he fulfills the prophecies in that he is the one in whom they find their completion, their fulfillment. Have you ever met uh, in just your life, in daily examples of coming up against somebody that is just they just seem so much better than you in almost every way. They're, they're smarter, they're sharper, they're quicker, they're faster. Uh, they're just better. In Pastor Wakeland's favorite movie, Lonesome Dove, the, it does a great job of laying out the characters. And you can see some that are clearly incompetent at everything they do. And that there are these few that are just super competent. They're the leaders of the people everybody looks up to and follows. Well, there is none that you have met that holds a candle to Christ, your Savior. Just imagine how many, if we were to count all the Old Testament laws that Christ had to fulfill every second, every millisecond of his life, and never once transgress, you might have heard the number 613. How long does it take you to transgress a law? It does not take you very long. We are all sinners daily, even by each hour we are sinners. And yet your Savior, your strong Christ, he is so perfect, so beautiful, so appealing. He has never once faltered or failed. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
This is proof of his divinity. He is the perfect one. Now, back to thinking about when you meet somebody that's just clearly better than you. Perhaps that person is an arrogant person who doesn't even have time for you. They see themselves as being on such a higher level than you. Is that the demeanor of Christ, your Savior, towards you? No. He has time for you. This mighty one, this one who has fulfilled all the law, cares deeply for you. He thinks of you. He is concerned for you. He loves you. Oh, this is a majestic Savior that we worship. How we should cling to Him every moment of every day. He is the Mighty One, the Righteous One, the One on whom our worship and adoration should be on constantly. Well, that's the first point. He came to fulfill He has fulfilled by obeying the law. He has fulfilled by being the object of those prophecies. He is the fulfiller. Let us move now to the second point, the law's permanence. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or in your Bible perhaps jot or tittle, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Before we get to that topic of the permanence, I just want to point out here, it does speak of being least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There are levels There are varying rewards. Scripture is clear about this. There are not only levels in heaven, there are levels in hell. Christ says it will be more tolerable for some than others when he's referring to Tyre and Sidon and all of these things. So there are levels. Now, that might make you squint and think, okay, so in heaven there's going to be people that are more well off than others. That sounds like it's a recipe for um, just malcontent and discontentment. I believe it was... Jonathan Edwards, greatest American theologian that we've ever produced, he had the analogy, I think it was of like bowls or um, containers where God's grace, he's just a fountain of mercy and grace and glory and all good things. And the, the bigger your bowl, the more you can catch and give to other people. You're giving grace to other people. There will not be a miserable person in heaven. There won't be wrong desires saying, well, they have more. But even those who have more are sharing and dispensing the mercy with everyone. Everyone is enjoying this. That's at least how Jonathan Edwards deals with texts like this where it talks about about varying levels. It's varying levels. Um, others have treated it in, you, you recognize when Christ, when we get to heaven and you're given a crown, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's another image of people throwing their crowns back at Christ's feet and saying, you deserve the reward. And so these people with their rewards are just able to lavish more on Christ and give back to Christ. It is not about us in heaven. On this planet, we try and build our own kingdoms and build our own lives, and we want more and more for ourselves. And in heaven, we're not going to be so focused on ourselves. Thank the Lord. Sin will not be that issue to finally be done with with vying and envy and jealousy. Can you imagine not experiencing another tinge of jealousy or envy? What a glorious thing that will be. 
Well, back to the part about the permanence. Here again, he is emphasizing, truly I say to you, I'm not just talking, I'm telling you the truth. Truly I say to you. He's earnest about what he's saying. He says, not one of these, and that jot or tittle or dot, it's the smallest marking in a, in a language. Maybe the dot of an I or an umlaut if in German or all these things. They're just, even the smallest thing is not going to pass away. And it's saying, until heaven and earth pass. So when, when somebody's wanting to emphasize the permanence or solidity of something, perhaps they say, as surely as the ground I'm standing on, this is going to happen. Well, here, even the earth we're standing on, that's less inexorable than God's word. God's word is more inexorable, is more steadfast, is more uh, not able to be transient or changed. It is the thing that is can be uh, trusted in. It is the thing that is steadfast as a rock. Even that analogy uses something physical as a as an example of what is firm. No, it is God's word that is the firm thing. Does it make sense? So returning back to what we're thinking about these dispensationalists who say dispensations, by the way, it's it was come up with Charles Ryrie and Schofield. And they said there's different parts in the Bible that are distinct. And they chopped it up and said, this is for these people. This is for these people. And so even in in the old form of it. There were two. There'd be the church and there'd be Israel and they'd be at the same time and they're distinct from each other and they both get to heaven in different routes. And it was a strange, strange uh, dichotomy. It, in your mind, you can think, how can they be saying that this this law in the Old Testament doesn't even apply to us? Perhaps Psalm 19 came to your mind. I'll read verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect. And this is referring to the same law that Christ was referring to, the law and the prophets. This is here talking about the same thing. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Yes, that sounds like something that we should just dispense with and get rid of. It's an inadequate law. No, this is the law of God. So how are we to handle this? There were, in fact, times when it looked like Christ was dismissing parts of the law. Let's take, for example, the Sabbath. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath. Let's look at Matthew 12, 9 through 12. He says, he went on from there and entered a synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and he asked him, uh, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They did this so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is Christ here saying, did he, did he respond and say, guess what, guys? There's no more Sabbath. It's done. It's gone. Out of here. It's a, it was a bad law to begin with. It was just for the people in the Old Testament. No. He's clarifying what it means. He's saying, the Sabbath does not preclude you from doing an act of mercy. When we have mercy cases that show up to this church, we do not say, come back on another day. The deacons will meet and discuss and decide how can we help administer God's mercy to people. 
that mercy is not something that's outlawed on the Sabbath. That is a perversion of the law. When Christ would say, you have heard, many times he's referring to what is called the traditions of men, things that were added on to the holy law, added on to the scriptures, and perverted the scriptures. Well, what are we to do, perhaps, with his, when he talked about the dietary laws? What are we to do with those? Because he said in Matthew fifteen eleven, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of a mouth that defiles the person, the heart. What you say, what you speak, the things that come out of you, your actions, those are what defile you. Well, so here it sounds like he's getting rid of the dietary laws. This is where it is so helpful for us to turn to Calvin. All of the law is not a uniform thing. Let's divide, as Calvin does, the several pieces of the law. There is the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral law. R. Scott Clark defines them this way. The ceremonial is the religious laws governing sacrifices and ritual purity in the, uh, and the like. The civil law is stipulated civil and capital punishments for the nation of Israel. And the moral law is the permanent law grounded in the nature of God to reflect his character. This part never changes. This is reflecting who he is. It wasn't, and of these three types, what was the only type that was written on stone? It was the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. These other things that applied to the nation of Israel on how they were to rule themselves, those were not written on the law, on the tablets. Those were not the permanent things. It is this moral law we see here. What, when was that moral law? It was written on the tablets at Sinai. Is that when it was introduced? No. The moral law came much. It was a sin for Cain to slay Abel. That was a sin when it happened. The moral law was ever since creation. God's character is reflected in this law. When they were walking, when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, there was the God's law reflected in him. It is wrong to disobey him, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is moral law, there is ceremonial law, and there is civil law. I'm going to read to you a quote from J.C. Ryle with regard to these different types. The Lord Jesus came to fulfill the predictions of the prophets who had long foretold that the Savior would one day appear. He came to fulfill the ceremonial law by becoming the great sacrifice for sin to which all the Mosaic offerings ever pointed so he is fulfilling these different types of laws. He died on the cross. Do you have to sacrifice a lamb anymore? Do you have to do these Old Testament fire offerings? No, that is Christ having fulfilled those in that way. When the Old Testament Israel, what, what happened to Old Testament Israel? We're the church right now. What happened to the Old Testament Israel? Well, the dispensationalists will say they're two separate things, and yet we will follow what it says in Scripture. Let's find the verse where it speaks. It is in Galatians. We want to be on Galatians 6.16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. And who is he speaking to? The church. That is the Israel of God. Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those who are in faith that are the sons of Abraham. The church has been grafted into this Israel. Israel is the spiritual church. 
We see that in Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, this is the Gentiles, you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So this is the church. So these Old Testament civil laws that referred to the state of Israel, now that the state of Israel has ceased and we are now the church, the spiritual body of Christ, those laws are not there. But has Christ fulfilled the moral law? In the same way that he has fulfilled the ceremonial, he died on the cross being the ultimate sacrifice. Now, he fulfilled all of the moral law. Does that mean we don't have to follow the moral law anymore? He was the perfect fulfiller? No. Paul says, should we go on sinning because so that grace can abound? And the answer is absolutely not. Well, what does it mean to sin? To transgress the law. This is not what we should do. Let's look at Calvin one more time. God had indeed promised a new covenant at the coming of Christ, but had at the same time showed that it would not be different from the first, but on the contrary, its design was to give a perpetual sanction to the covenant, which he had made from the beginning with his own people. I will write my law, says he, in their hearts, and I will remember their iniquities no more. By these words, he is so far from departing from the former covenant that on the contrary, he declares that it will be confirmed and ratified when he shall, when, when it shall be succeeded by the new. It is also the meaning of Christ's words when he says that he has come to fulfill. He is actually the fulfillment by quickening of the spirit, the dead letter of the law, the reality that he had hitherto only seen in figures. As we close, we'll mention the third point, the law's inadequacy apart from Christ. We see here that the law is good. The law is a good thing, and it's not abolished. Christ has not abolished the law. And yet I wonder, while a hammer is good for hitting things, is a hammer good for screwing in things? No, the law is good for showing a mirror for our sin. The law is good for guiding how Christians should live their lives. Is the law, I wonder, good for saving sinners? Indeed, it is not. You know, the law is incompetent to save any sinner. Once you have transgressed the law, all hope is lost for you to regain the favor of God on your own this last verse where he says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of you might think, well, that's not too hard. The scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites. Christ is always calling them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. So I can be holier than the Pharisees. That's not that bad. They were ruining the law. I can at least understand the law and try and do it. That's better than they were. Well, first, in every one of those insults that Christ gives to them, do you miss the part where he talks about what they were actually doing? He says, and R.C. Sproul points this part out, he says, um, they tithed down to the smallest amount. So what does that mean they were doing at least? They were tithing. How is our giving? How is your giving? Is it perfect giving? Do you give as you're supposed to give? He said, you go over land and sea to make one convert. 
And then he says, you make them a double, double damned because you're putting all these, own, these burdens on them. But nonetheless, did you catch what they were willing to do? They were willing to go over land and sea to make converts. They were willing to spread the word. How is your ministry of evangelism? You're willing to go over land and sea to reach people. They searched the scriptures. They knew their Bibles well, probably better than any of us. So is it easy to be more righteous than they were? Well, as we will see as we read the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, when he raises the standard of the law to the heart level, it is not easy to be more righteous. It is hard for sinners like us. We are sinners. We are incompetent to meet the standard. So what is the solution? It is to do what we did in point one. See our Savior. Love our Christ who has lived the perfect life, who has fulfilled it. And we are to love that Savior. Just imagine for this last thought experiment. How many of you have ever, uh, hopefully none of you have gotten a ticket, but you've seen the red sirens behind and maybe you get that sinking feeling. I admit when I was in college, I was a bad speeder. I have since gotten better at it, but not better at speeding, better at not speeding. But I have experienced what that feels like. And perhaps you have too, or even worse, perhaps you've been brought before a judge and, and you knew you were guilty. You really were guilty. And he was right to be able to dispense whatever justice he had. Now imagine you're standing in the dock and God is the judge and it's judgment day and you have no advocate and you are guilty and hell is on the balance. Do you see the value of your savior? What he did to die for you, that you would not have that feeling, that you would not go to perdition. This is the Savior who has not abolished the law, who has fulfilled the law. And, of course, we are to take that forgiveness that he gives, that atoning sacrifice that he gives. We are to live lives not of licentiousness, but we are trying to meet that standard that he asks of us. Oh, what a good Savior he is. Cling to your Christ this week. Hold up the law. See your weakness and cling to your Savior. And as you repent and believe, look back to your Savior. Look back to the law. Repent and believe. It's that same Lutheran image of looking at the law and then turning to the cross and seeing your forgiveness and looking to the law and turning to the cross and, and continually having that existence and growing in sanctification. Christ is the great one. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for salvation. How we thank you for your law. It is good. We thank you that it reveals your character. We thank you that you have revealed it to us. You have not left us in the dark. Oh, how we pray that you will cause us to be earnest in following the law. We do want to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisee. We do want to please you. We want to walk in the paths of righteousness where life flourishes. We know you've given us the moral law because it is good and so we desire to do that, Heavenly Father. Please help us to follow your law. But, oh, Heavenly Father, never let us justify ourselves thinking that we are doing so well in the law. Let us see ourselves that by the mirror of the law, that we know how much we need Christ, that we are eternally in debt to you. Oh, Heavenly Father, 
May we, every moment of every day, cling to our Savior. May we love you more and more every moment. Thank you for grace. We ask all of this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.